All right, church. As they're heading that direction, if, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll make your way over to the letter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're heading. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're new with us or a visitor, the way we typically go about things or the way that I, I go about preaching is walking through entire books of the Bible. Uh, we've been walking for about, gosh, I don't even know how long we've been here, uh, six, seven weeks, whatever that is, uh, walking through 1 Corinthians thus far, and my ambition is to continue walking through this book. That said, next week we may take a, a slight divergence. I don't know yet. Uh, we might. And so if next week we're not in 1 Corinthians, uh, I'm giving you fair warning, okay? But I, I intend on us coming back to it if we do uh, diverge for a week, okay? So we'll, we'll just see how things go. Again, 1 Corinthians, what we've seen thus far, Paul addressing this church at Corinth, and specifically over the past couple of weeks, Paul's been using this metaphoric language, these analogies, equating the church to a, a building, God's building, God's field. Uh, he's talked about it being a temple, and he's related this, this relationship of the church towards her leaders and talked about the leaders that they're builders and planters and waterers. And he's trying to illustrate, to uh, illuminate this relationship between the church and her leaders because it's really out of sync. It's out of proportion. It's not right the way it's functioning in Corinth. And where he left off last week as we concluded chapter 3 was with Paul essentially saying, hey, I'm a resource of yours. And if you align yourself behind one particular leader, you lose all the other resources that are available to you. Essentially, if you follow Apollos, you lose what you might get from a Paul or a Cephas. So he's, he's saying, don't limit yourself. You've got all these resources available to you. Now, it's pertinent that in following that, he go to where he goes next. What he's going to do next is unpack, okay, how do you regard the resource? If you've got all these limitless resources available to you, how, how do you consider those? What, what do you think about those? What manner do you hold those resources in? And so that's where we're going to jump into this morning. Here in chapter 4, Lord willing, we're going to get through verse 13. I don't know that for certain. We'll just see what the Lord does, all right? But tell you what, let me read the text. And uh, actually, you know what? Let me pray. And then what we'll do is walk through this a little at a time. I'll read about four or five verses, and then we'll unpack it a little as we go. Let's do it that way this morning, all right? Let me pray for us first. Father, I, I do thank you for this morning. Lord, for the blessing of gathering as your bride, as brothers and sisters, as your kids. Lord, we thank you for the the family language that you use in describing your church, and Lord, the reality that that is. Lord, we're family here. We might be from a multitude of different contexts and nations and socioeconomic groups, but the reality is if, if God is our Father, here together, Christ our Lord, we're brothers and sisters, more closely related to someone that shares the same blood as us. So Father, we thank you for that reality. And Lord, I pray that we live in such a way that that reality is reflected. Lord, let that be seen here among us. That we live as brothers and sisters, seeking to honor our Father 
every day. Father, I ask for your help this morning that you might give me the words to say, keep me from error. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May I not muddy the waters or trample the grass. Lord, I pray that you would do exactly what you intend to do this morning. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so let's jump in. Let me read the first couple of verses for us here. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So Paul is once again shifting the analogy. He's changing it up again. Again, he's talked about temples and fields and buildings, and now he's equating himself to a servant, a steward. Regard us in this way, in this manner, as servants of Christ. He's saying, I'm subservient. I sit under another's authority. He's not ultimate. And the church shouldn't treat him as such. We're just servants. We're stewards. Now, as he uses this term, stewards, that, that's kind of moving into a household kind of language. We see a steward being someone who's appointed with certain responsibilities. Maybe they manage or oversee a household. The owner of the house has entrusted them to something in particular. He says, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The primary obligation of a steward, of a manager of a household, of someone who's tasked with that responsibility is that they're found to be trustworthy. That the owner of the house trusts them. That they are seen to do everything that the owner says, that the master of the house says. That, that's the primary objective of one who is a steward. And Paul's setting himself in that position, that he's a steward under the Lordship of Christ. Now, he's very explicit in this. He's not beating around, he's not shading this in all sorts of allegory, anything like that. No, he's very explicit because what he says next in verse 3, if we don't understand verse 2, verse 3 seems really weird. Okay, you might read verse 3 and say, that, that just sounds odd. And it does, again, if it's absent from its context. So look with me, verse 3. He says this, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I, I do not even examine myself. You see where that could come off a little weird? An apostle, a leader in the church, saying... It's a very small thing that I be examined by you. What, what does he mean by that? To be examined, to be judged. Remember, that, that's something that's happening in Corinth. They're examining, they're judging their leadership, and he's saying that, that doesn't mean much to me. Or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Is, is he going rogue here? Have we lost Paul in, in chapter 4, he's just a rogue apostle going out. He's pushing away congregational authority. Is that, is that what's happening here? No, it's, it's not. In fact, let's, let's just consider a few things here. We, we know that the church is tasked with the responsibility of keeping others accountable, keeping those within the body accountable. In fact, you get to chapter 5, that's very much what it's about because there's immorality within the church and Paul's encouraging the church, hey, you have to... 
examine this person. You have to judge this person. You, you have to hold them accountable. So that's, that's not what he's saying in verse 3. All right, that he's not accountable. That, that's not what he means. Likewise, when he says, I don't even examine myself, it's, it's not as though he is flippant in his apostolic role. Because look at verse 4. He says, For I am conscious, excuse me, conscious of nothing against myself. So evidently, there is some measure of examination. Because he's checking his conscience. He, he's not aware of any outright sin or disobedience in his life that would put him at odds with his master. So, so what does he mean in verse 3? I think it's a little bit like this. Let's, let's say we have a, a coffee farm. And there's a lot of those around here. This might be more relatable than my pumpkin pie analogy a few weeks back. I later found out pumpkin pie is not a big thing around here. Um, there's a lot of coffee around here. I know that, all right? Brazil, uh, the largest coffee-producing country in the world, so there's plenty of plantations and farms. Let's say you've got a coffee farm, and there's a manager that is tasked with oversight of this coffee farm, and he's over all of the employees, and he makes sure everything runs smoothly and things happen. And, and after a while, the employees begin to critique this manager, and they begin to say, well, you know, those drying beds, they're just not at the right place. They should be over here. Or the height of the drying beds, that's just not right, it's too low, it should be this. Or over by the, the wet mill where you pulp the coffee cherries, that, there's, there's not the right amount of water flowing through that, that needs to be adjusted. They begin to question his capability, his qualifications. Now, would that have any bearing on the manager? It might, right? It, it might impact him in some measure. But what if this is the scenario? What if the owner of the plantation, the owner of the farm, had given direct instructions? This is why the drying beds are where they are. This is the height that they are. This is how they have to be. We only have this much water. This is the allotment. This is how much comes through every day. What if the owner of the plantation had given the manager those kind of instructions? Well, in light of that, does it really matter what the employees think? In a sense, no. Because the manager is not ultimately accountable to them, right? He, he has to answer to his boss, to the owner. That, that's the one. It's not as though he doesn't care what the employees think. It's just that he has instructions on how it should be. So, so it is with Paul, in a sense. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm ultimately accountable to God. Look, look what he says in verse 4. Keep going down, because I don't think I read all of the verse. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I do, excuse me, I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The Lord examines him. The reality is, the assessment, now again, this isn't based on morality. This is what's happening here is the Corinthians are giving critiques. They're setting one individual against another. They're making evaluation and assessments based on the worldly system. Remember, it's all about rhetoric and preference, those kind of things. 
He's saying, but the one who examines me is the Lord. The Corinthians, their means of examination, it's faulty. It's fallible. That, that's why he includes himself. I don't even examine myself. Essentially, Paul's saying, even my own assessments of my ministry, I know that it's fallible. Even my own judgments, my own assessments. That, that's what he's getting at. And, and I can relate to that. I think a lot of pastor, elder types can understand this. I'm sure others as well. But this isn't in my notes, but I just trust the Lord has this. But I, I can't tell you how many pastors evaluate their faithfulness, their trustworthiness, based on how Sundays feel. Right? You get to the end of a Sunday and you say, man, that went really well. That flowed great. And at the end of the day, well, is that because of our own assessment? I'm fallible, right? Or you say, well, that, that didn't feel right. It was really bumpy and, and I didn't say things as well as I could. Well, we don't know what God may have been doing in that. Our, our own assessments and judgments are, are fallible. So what Paul's saying here is ultimately it's God who is going to judge. It's God who's going to make these assessments. And so he's saying, be, be careful in how you make these assessments, Corinthians. As you judge your leaders, as you judge Paul, Apollos, all these different ones, as you pit one against another, he's saying, don't be quick in doing that. In fact, he, he digs in a little further. He says this, therefore, look at verse 5, therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. All throughout this text, all throughout Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, there's an eschatological flavor. He's already talked about it a little bit in chapter 3, verse 13, when he said, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. What's he talking about? The return of Jesus. In that day, all the work will be seen as it is, lasting or not lasting. How wise was that builder, right? Essentially here he's once again readdressing that eschatological flavor here to put off your assessments until the Lord comes back. Because then the judgment will be true. The assessment will be right. Church, how often do we, just as churches in general, in particular in the West. We've, we've used a, a system, a metric of measuring faithfulness that looks too much like the metric of success in the world. We do. We, we measure the, the trustworthiness of a steward based on what? The size of a budget? How big the membership is? How big the facility is? How many pastors have labored, church leaders have labored faithfully and never seen large fruit? Maybe they've had a Bible study with 20 people and it's been that way for 50 years. And we might would say, hmm, I don't know about that. Whereas on the other hand, we see a, a pastor that has eight cable TV shows and a, a mega campus. And we'd say, man, he must be doing something right. Paul's saying that's not the metric we use. That's a faulty judgment. That's a faulty assessment. You can't 
You can't analyze it that way. All that's going to be burned up in the end, and we'll see what's lasting and what's not. How many leaders, how many ministers of the gospel, and that includes all of us, right? Not, not just me or vocational ministers, but all of us, have labored, never seen what we would see as large bearing fruit, but one day we'll stand before God and he'll say, well done. You did it right. That was lasting, what you did. And how many that, by the world standards, saw just mass amounts of growth and health, we'll see it burned up. Church, we need to check how we evaluate trustworthiness, faithfulness. It ought not look like the same metric the world uses. Look, look what happens here. Paul's going to continue to unpack this. Look with me. Look at verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I've figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you, excuse me, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now, verse 6 it's got three parts. Two parts of it are very clear. One part's a little ambiguous, all right? The first part, we see that he's applied this to himself, to Apollos, and he's done that for their benefit. It's for the church's benefit, for your sake. Now, the last part of the verse, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. That's why he's written this. They're self-inflated. They're puffed up. They are arrogant. And he's writing this to curb that, that they not be. Now that leaves you with the middle part here, so that in us you may learn, excuse me, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. What does he mean by that? That's a little bit of an odd phrase. And like I said, ambiguous. There's been a lot of scholarly discussion and debate on this. Some would say he's referencing back to the Old Testament, that that's what he's talking about having been written, and that they ought not exceed what was written in the Old Testament. That could very well be true. Maybe it's referring to what he's written here thus far, or the quotes that he's used. That could be it. Here's what I think, and, and I'll clarify. This is, I think. I don't know this, okay? I'm not going to argue about it. It's just, I, I think this to be the case, all right? This is not Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. In fact, you go to chapter 5, verse 9, he says this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he's written them a letter before, and what happened? Verse 10, he goes on to say, I did not at all mean with all immoral people in this world. He wrote to them previously and said, don't affiliate, associate with immoral people within the church. They overly applied that to everybody. And Paul says, you, you can't live in the world if you don't associate with immoral people. You, you can't seclude yourself in that way. It doesn't work. So I, I think what Paul's saying when he says this, when he says, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, I think what he's pointing back to is everything he's written up until this point. As I've prepared these past couple of weeks in, in sermon preparation. 
it, it feels a little bit like I'm taking a different hammer and hitting the same nail every week. Like there, there's a certain aspect to that. And I think that's intentional. I think that's what Paul did. He's going at this same root issue in the Corinthian church and he's going at it a lot of different ways so that they don't misapply it. So that if, if he were just to say the church is a building and its workers are builders, master builders, somebody somewhere is going to take it and run with it and say, man, he's a master architect. They're going to glorify that servant of the Lord. So what does he do? He follows it up by saying, well, we're servants. Regard us as servants. You see how he's framing that up? He's writing this in such a way, he's beating this, this nail with so many different hammers, so many different directions, so that they don't misconstrue this. To make sure they understand. Don't go beyond what I'm writing, Corinthians. I think that's what he's saying here. I think that's what he's trying to get at. Now, with regards to their arrogance, because again, that, that's what's going on here. This church has an arrogance in their assessment of their leadership. Look where he goes next in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Church, that... That's a pretty weighty statement from Paul. Who regards you as superior? This church in Corinth had gotten so puffed up, so inflated. They had, in a sense, arrived. They had received grace, and now they, they've arrived. And they're looking down on the apostle. They're looking down on their casting assessments and judgments and critiques from their high and lofty position. And Paul is about to point out the, the fatal flaw in that. What do you have that you did not receive? All the gifts that you have, everything you have, it is not from you. It is not inherently of you. It's from someone else. It's all by grace that you have it. So why do you act like it's yours? Church, grace ought to produce in us a deep gratitude and humility. That's how we should operate as believers. Deeply gracious, deeply humble people. Appreciative people. And what we've seen in Corinth and what happens in so many believers in churches, that gift of grace gets turned. And, and, and here there's a pride that has set up. It's brought about a judgmental attitude. A loftier, higher than others kind of mentality. That, that's what's happening here. I, I think one thing that, um, one commentator that I read this week, I just want to quote him because I think he says it very well. In the thrust of this statement, Gordon Fee says this. This is how he would translate the text. Who in the world do you think you are? What kind of self-delusion 
is it that allows you to put yourself in a position to judge another person's servant? I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. Who do you think you are? He, he's not pulling any punches here. And, and I... I'm going off my notes a lot. I don't know if that's good or bad. We live in a day, I think, in the West, where, and I say in the West because I, I know not every church globally is like this, but I, I think about my former context, and so often, I, I think we just have a soft faith that sometimes when, when we read texts like this, when Paul is really driving this in and being real with the church and saying, who do you think you are? We would step back in the West and say, well, you can't talk to me like that. What, what are you talking about? You, you can't talk to me that way, Paul. Which that reply exposes the condition of our heart that we think we are higher and loftier than we are. Apart from grace, we're nothing, church. We don't have any righteousness, no goodness in and of ourselves. It's all from Jesus. Every bit of it. And that should produce a deep gratitude and graciousness and humility in our hearts in the way in which we live. Even in how we assess others. We don't judge other people's servants. We ought to be deeply gracious and humble. Now look, look where he goes because he keeps pushing on this. Paul, Paul's not going to lay down on this issue. He, he's going to drive this home here, Okay? Look, look at verse 8, because I told you there's a, a thread, a flavor of eschatological uh, truth going all throughout this, a, a theme going all throughout this. He's going to hit it again. You are already filled. You are already, have already become rich. You have become kings without us. Now, that could probably translate better, uh, depending on your scripture <laughs> translation, um, you have begun reigning without us. That's probably a better translation because at the end of verse 8, he says that we might reign also. So there's a, a parallel there. So that's probably better. The, the focus isn't on being kings, but rather reigning, okay? You're already filled. You've already become rich. You've already begun to reign without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings or that you had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. What is he saying? Church and Christianity, there's this tension of already but not yet. We've been justified, praise God for that. But we're still being sanctified. We've not yet been glorified. We've been born a new creation, transformed, but at the same time we still struggle in our sin. Right? You, you see that tension, this already but not yet? Paul understands that. He's dealing with that. This church is saying, hey, we've already arrived. We're, we're justified, sanctified, and glorified. That, that's their position. And he's saying, I, I wish that you were. I wish that you had become kings or that you had begun to reign so that we might reign also. So Paul's saying here, I'm not reigning yet and by implication, neither are you. He's calling them out on this. You haven't arrived, Corinthians. And he goes on to unpack this. Look what he says. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death 
because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now that probably has some flavor of the arena being a spectacle of death, the Roman society. May even be a little flavor there of the triumphal entry that he's going to talk about later in his next letter, that being an apostle would be conquered by Jesus and coming in and you submit under his lordship and his kingship. And so he goes on to say, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Now, here's a mistake we make too often, or I know we've made it uh, in America, in the U.S. Far too often we say, okay, Paul's saying he's a fool for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We, we associate too often with the Corinthians as a good thing and say, oh, I'm prudent in Christ. That was bad for the apostles, but we're prudent. We're strong. Paul's using irony here. This is a biting indictment against the church here at Corinth. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You hear the, the tone in that? You are distinguished. But we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we are reveled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul here is laying out not just a list of afflictions in his own ministry, though they are. He has a lot of them. What he's doing is drawing out a, a contrast here in his life and ministry that his life and ministry looks a lot more like the cross of Jesus than the life and ministry that the Corinthians are seeking. They want to be rich now. They want to be wise now. They want to have all these things in their current ministry. And Paul's saying, that's not the ministry of the cross. In fact, a faithful, God-honoring ministry is probably going to look a lot more like the ministry of Jesus. The normative way of obedience is walking the path that is filled with tribulation. Paul says, as he's discipling new churches in Acts chapter 14, he says, you enter into the kingdom through many afflictions, through many trials. Church, there's hardships on the path of obedience. And if you don't have any hardships, you might need to check yourself and make sure you're on the right path. Now, don't mishear me. This is not Paul saying that every believer has to be homeless. He's not saying that. That's not what he means. He's not saying that we should get some martyrdom complex and give everything away. Now, the Lord may ask you to give stuff away. I'm not saying He won't do that. He might. But that's not the focus. Let, let me read. This is out of Isaiah chapter 53. You're probably familiar with this. The suffering servant. This, this defines the ministry of Jesus, what it looks like. Isaiah 53, picking up in verse 2, halfway through. He says, And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one 
from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. That's our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we serve. So what Paul's getting at here is, church, what's our focus? What's our desire for life and ministry? And, and again, I don't mean that just from a vocational standpoint. We're all ministers, right? According to Ephesians chapter 4. We're all ministers of the gospel. Is our chief desire that our ministry look successful in the world's eyes? Or that it look like the ministry of the cross? That's what Paul's driving home here. He's saying to these Corinthians, my ministry looks like Jesus. What's yours look like? That's pretty strong. Church, I think we need to ask that question ourselves what do we desire what is our definition of success is it that we have this budget this office this this or is it that our ministry look like that of the Lord Jesus a ministry that is defined by the power of the cross that does not invalidate it I think we need to ask ourselves that. And here's the thing. I'm going I'm to go here. This is where we'll end. There was another church that was dealing with this a couple of decades later over in Revelation, the church at Laodicea. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to them. He says this, Because you say, this is the church saying this, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. He says, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. How often we think we have arrived. And the reality is, we are poor and blind and naked. Now what's Jesus' call here? What, what does He say? Does He say, go give everything away? Well, again, he may call you to do that. But here's what he says. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. That sounds a lot like what Paul was saying in the last chapter. That what you invest in, what you purchase with your life, be things that are eternal, things that are lasting, that are not fleeting. What are you pouring into? Is it all just trivial things or is it eternal purposes? And when we see ourselves to be in error here, what do we do? Jesus says in verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. We repent. We confess that we've messed it up and we need the Lord's help. Church, I'm going to pray and uh, I just want you to be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning. I'll be available outside to, to pray with you. I'd love to do that. There's going to be others that are available as well that would love to pray for you. But you be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning, whatever that may be. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you again for this morning. I thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, that it would accomplish the task that you've set for it to accomplish. And Lord, I, I pray that with confidence, knowing that your scripture says that it will. 
And so, Lord, I, I pray that you might do that work. Lord, that you would correct our hearts, correct our, our gaze, our motivations. Lord, that we might labor for things that are enduring. That we might seek a ministry that looks more and more like Jesus and less and less like what the world defines as, as success. Father, write our affections, fix our gaze on you, and Lord, be made much of in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.